Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie forward slash drama on one and of course here on RTE Radio One on Sunday nights. Tonight's Drama on One is Creatives in Conversation, where we broadcast interviews from the archives with artists whose creativity has distinguished them as among the best in their chosen discipline. Brian Eno is widely acknowledged as one of the most creative and important innovators working in music today. He began his career as a member of Roxy Music, leaving the band after their second album, For Your Pleasure and subsequently developing and later coining the term ambient music. Eno has also enjoyed parallel careers as musician and producer, working with, among others, David Bowie, Talking Heads, Devo, Grace Jones, Laurie Anderson and Coldplay, as well as producing several albums with U2. This conversation was recorded and filmed in the library of Fitzpatrick's Hotel, Dawkey, as part of the 2016 Dawkey Book Festival. You can see the filmed version of this conversation on the Drama on One website, rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Brian, it's great to, to talk to you again since we, we spoke uh, just about a year ago uh, and obviously lots has happened in the last year. One thing that has happened is that you have released uh, another album, The Ship. Um, and it, I was really intrigued by the, 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 the format of it. You like it's laid out in four tracks and two of the tracks are very, very long. Did it start out as a, an album or what was the concept? It, it started out, no, it didn't start as an album and it certainly didn't start as anything that was intended to be vocal or song-like. Um, it started out, I was invited by <clears throat> a Swedish electronic music studio, in fact, the oldest in the world, actually, um, to use their multi-channel sound system, and they wanted me to make a sound installation in Stockholm. So I started working on that, thinking it would be just instrumental, ambient music. And at a certain point, I started singing, because I discovered that I could sing the root note which was a lower note than I've ever sung before. It's a low C. And so I thought, mm, I like that singing. <laughs> so I started to think of a way that I could use my voice in it. So, of course, I started writing a song. And it suddenly went through a real sort of change of phase somehow when it went from being instrumental, just about noises, to suddenly having a voice in it, to having a, a narrator, if you like, or a personality. Um, and so it became a song, really. And when, I mean, the, you're very interested in the voice uh, as instrument. And when we hear the, the, this voice, it does sound quite genderless. And I was thinking, I interviewed Kate Bush once and she talked about how her voice had changed as she'd gotten older. Mm -hmm. Has that been part of your experience and, and how did you approach it? Uh, very much part of my experience. I mean, one of the things that happens as you get older is that your voice drops in pitch. And of course, so you gain some notes at the bottom, but you lose a lot more at the top. So basically, you're, unless you're a professional singer who keeps practicing, um, your range narrows and softens and goes a bit darker. Um, and actually, I found that that was a voice that I liked, the new voice. I suddenly found I had this new easy way of singing. I kept thinking like I felt like Tony Bennett or... Uh, Dean Martin or someone like that. A crooner. A crooner, yeah. And I, I sort of discovered my adult voice in my early 60s, really. 
um, prior to that, I was still sort of in my adolescent voice. And I've noticed this happening with a few other singers as well, that they, they suddenly learn a different way of singing quite late in their career. In terms of the voice, obviously, is, is, is the, the vehicle for lyrics. <clears throat> and there are lots of very interesting reference points in the lyrics on the ship. What, what were they and, and, and how, what way did they inspire you? <clears throat> the problem with lyrics is that people always assume that they're the first thing that you, you do in a song. In my experience, and, and also in my experience of other singers, they're nearly always the last thing that happen. So people assume that if there are lyrics, that was what started the whole process, and that the, the rest of the, excuse me, the rest of the song exists to sort of elaborate the lyrics, the, that the lyrics really contain the kind of kernel of the meaning. That's never been the way for me. The lyrics are the last thing I think about, um, and they really come out of sound and mood. So, for instance, in this piece, um, the ship, it it started with me making an instrumental landscape or a sonic landscape that felt more and more like an ocean to me. I, f I felt these waves of sound and it was turbulent and rather somber and menacing. And then, as I said, I started singing and the first word that came up was roll, roll. This word roll, it kept coming back. And then I, I felt sure that it was something to do with a ship at sea that was in distress of some kind or or facing a dangerous future. Um, apart from that, yes, and I was thinking about the Titanic a bit, but I was thinking of the Titanic more from the point of view of it being a sort of herald of the First World War because they both happened for exactly the same reason. They both happened because somebody believed that they were more invincible than they actually were. <laughs> <laughs> and more powerful than they actually were. And the sinking of the Titanic was sort of the hubris of its engineers and of a whole generation of Victorians facing a big iceberg um, that wasn't going to be shifted that easily. Just when you said the sinking of the Titanic, it made me think of Gavin Bryars and that wonderful yeah. piece that he did. Um, it, there, There is a sense as well that... The, the, the ship and then the, the, the fickle sun piece, they're the antithesis of the, the three-minute pop song, and you've never done that anyway. Um, but do you find that in in a non-album world, we live in you know, a single download, song shuffle kind of culture, that this these were pieces that commanded that people stay with them, people were meant to sit down and, and go the journey with them? Yes, and, well, as I said, I started it really as an ambient piece, so I wasn't expecting it to turn into a song. And... I suppose had I been expecting that, I wouldn't have made it so long. Um, uh, that that was sort of a surprise to me that it could work to have a song of that kind of duration and for the voice not to be the so persistently there. You know, the voice appears for a relatively small part of the duration of the song. Um, but also, of course, not to have a lot of the things that usually support a song. It doesn't have rhythm. It doesn't have chord changes. It doesn't have the kind of structure that you usually build to support a song. So so for me, that was a real, actually an incredible liberation that I could use my voice in a sort of, in a field of sound that was not um, chopped up in, into little time chunks. 
so it could float like all the other things in the, in the field of sound. That was something new for me. It was also, when I got to the end, I was very surprised by these rolling waves of, of quite intense music. And then, all of a sudden, I'm set free by mm. the Velvet Underground comes on. Why that song? Um, I recorded that actually about 15 years ago. I love that song. And I, I love that album, that particular Velvet Underground album. And that song sort of captures the strange, uh, ambivalent mood that the whole of that album have, has because it's saying, I'm set free, and then the following line is to find a new illusion. So there's there's a sort of bittersweet um, feeling in that. And a, about four years ago, I went to see a... I don't know whether you call it a play or a dance by the Israeli Hofesh Shekta. Um it's the most extraordinary piece of work. It's called Political Mother, I think, or Patriot Mother. Um, and it's incredibly intense and active. And then at the end, after 55 minutes of very, very high-speed, chaotic action, it suddenly cuts to another song, the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, but her orchestral version of it. So her voice is very smoky like this. And there's something so shocking about that change of mood. Um, and I remembered that. I thought, I want to do that one day. <laughs> um, so I'd been working on this piece, and I thought, this is the piece that I could do that. So I then started to think, what have I done that I could put at the end? And I, I remembered that song, um, which, as I said, I recorded 15 years ago or so, 12 or 15 years it, it goes back quite a long way, and yet when I was listening to it, obviously it made me think about Lou Reed and his passing a couple of years ago, and then it made me think of David Bowie, who had who has passed away. Um, were, I mean, giants like that, and, and obviously you're very close to Bowie, and I'm sure you've been asked to speak about him an awful lot. Do you, do you have an abiding memory of him? Um, I haven't spoken about him much because I don't particularly want to. <laughs> um I find the sort of people drowning in this slightly synthetic grief that they have when somebody somebody like that dies is is a little bit embarrassing, and I didn't want to be part of it. Um, obviously, we had a we had a good working relationship, and we had a good friendship as well. Um, and it's it's finished now, and that's all there is to it, really. Um, I don't know what else to say. That's, that's fair enough. Um, I wanted to ask you about something that I think you said very recently, that you invented rap. <laughs> I was partly joking to kind of annoy somebody. <laughs> I was thinking that if I said that, somebody would say, oh, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, but actually what I meant by it was that I remember sitting in a car with David Byrne in... Los Angeles, when at the time we were working on My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. So for the benefit of your younger viewers, <laughs> My Life in the Bush of Ghosts was a an album where instead of using singers, I took voices off the radio and off records <clears throat> and then put them into a new musical context. So often they were preachers or um, singers from other parts of the world. Um, but it was an experiment that really hadn't been done before of 
pasting one music onto another. It's been done a lot since, but um, anyway, that while we were working on that, I remember sitting in this car and saying to David, I bet in the future there's going to be a kind of music that will be hardcore rhythm tracks with people screaming poetry over them. I, I said it because I'd been influenced by that band, The Last Poets. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. That was three, three um, young black guys who I think were from L.A. as well who basically sung improvised poetry over percussion, um, bongos and so on. And I thought, that's really a music of the future, this. And so I had this idea that in the future there would be a kind of music that would be animated street poetry. And I remember discussing this and saying that's going to happen. So anyway, then we released um, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And about 10 years later, I read an interview with Hank Shockley of Public Enemy. And somebody said, so how did it get started? And he said, oh, well, we heard this album by Brian Eno and David Byrne. <laughs> and we were all very excited about it. So, so that's, what, um, that's what Public Enemy said. <laughs> it must be true. Um, <laughs> the idea of um, generative music, um, the idea that there, that there will be music that will be self-generating, do you think that's possible with writing? I was wondering about that. Um, in fact, on the ship, I worked with something called a Markov chain generator, which is a, a sort of statistical randomizing mechanism, which works very well on writing. Um, what you do is you put in a whole lot of different source material. You know, you can have a bit of Ulysses, a shopping list, um, some of the telephone directory, whatever you like. You put in chunks of text and the generator looks at the text and assigns the probability of one word being followed by any other word. And it looks at the text that you fed into it to, to make that probability table. So it might say, you know, the word red is followed um, by fire engine 4% of the time, by cheeks 12% of the time, by lips 18% of the time, so on. And so when it comes up, when it's generating, if the word red comes up, then it chooses its next word by looking at that probability table. So you get something, I know this will never be on television, this is what they call really dead dead air on television. Everything interesting doesn't make it in the end, <laughs> but I still keep trying. <laughs> um, so, so what it does, it makes a text that is sort of credible because it, it is based on real texts. Um, and the song, the little um, poem, the prelude to I'm Set Free on the record is, is a text made in that way. But so is the music with that. So the piece of music underneath it is also generated by a Markov chain generator. So, of course, with, with all randomizing functions in art, what really counts is what you put in in the first place and what you choose to use out of, what, out of the end of it, you know. Um, so... With that particular one, to generate that song, there was something like um, 2,000 lines of text, of which I chose maybe 40. So there's a high rejection rate. <laughs> um, the, when, we, um, when we spoke last year, and obviously we, we've touched on the, the idea of, of 
David Bowie, and I know that Bowie was interested in this idea of, of writing this way, but also you, you wrote to each other a lot by, by email. Are you a writer or somebody who, who likes a correspondent? Um, well, David and I, when we wrote to each other, we we always were joking. So so quite the, quite a lot of the emails were fairly absurd and very funny. He, he was a very, very funny person. It's It's an aspect of him that people don't really know about that much, but he was possibly one of the wittiest people I ever met. Um, he had a very fast, elliptical sort of mind. And he signed every single letter with a different name. Very funny names. <laughs> and in fact, the last email I got from him a few days before he died, it was signed Dawn. Um, yeah, it was, it was a typical sort of name he would choose. Um, I can't I'm remember slightly your... Sp- and slightly spooky as well. Um, yeah. do, I, I, the idea of correspondence. I mean, obviously, it's different. It's it's. I, I was writing things out by hand this morning. It's a different process when you're writing things out on paper, and obviously, yes. you send a lot of email. But do you do you, do you? How do you feel about the idea of, of writing to people? Is sometimes as a writer has a subject, has a destination, and that's often another person, whether that's a reader or the recipient of your email. Um, well, I correspond quite a lot with. There's a few people I've been corresponding with for many many decades now. Um, John Hassel is one of them. Stuart Brand is another. Um, so we have very, very long correspondences, and they're quite intellectual correspondences since those are the things that drew us together in the first place anyway. Um, then I have sort of silly correspondences like the one with David, <laughs> which rarely became at all serious. And in fact, our time in the studio was the same. We, we joked most of the time. Um, it's interesting that you can do quite serious work whilst never admitting that you're being serious. That that was the part of the joke, really, to constantly undermine the seriousness of the situation. But as for writing, yes, I have to say I find it hard to write if I don't have another mind in my head when I'm doing it. So, So I think when I'm writing, I'm always writing to somebody in particular, even if that person is never going to receive that thing. For a long time, I wrote to Peter Schmidt, who was a friend of mine um, in my 20s and 30s. He died in 1980. And I still sometimes am writing to Peter because I, it sort of gives me a focus for where my mind should go and what, to what extent I'm going to explain things and how difficult I'm going to let them become and how elliptical and how eclectic and so on. Mm. So I'm, I don't think I'm a natural writer in the sense of somebody who sits down and writes just to the world, mm. you know. In terms of writing music and writing songs, um, Stephen King has a, a great book about the craft of writing. And he says that uh, your first draft that you write should only ever be for yourself and nobody else. Do you take that approach or a completely opposite one to make to writing music? That's hard. To, I don't have a single policy on that. Um, some things do happen to be pretty much perfect first time round. That's very lucky when that happens. Um, but you have to recognise it that sometimes it does work that way, and you're only going to make them worse. But then there's, as Picasso said, there's nothing worse than a brilliant beginning, um, which is meaning if sometimes something falls into place so well at the beginning that you don't really know where to go from there. 
you know it's not finished, but you don't know what else to do. You, you're worried that you're going to mess it up. So the things that work most successfully for me are the, the sort of slowly evolving, slowly getting better with occasional breakthroughs and then getting better for a while. The ship took a long time. That was um, two years' work in there. I mean, I wasn't at it every day, but, but it, it appeared over two years, well, over two and a half years, actually. Mm. How do you feel about the, the, the concept of, of the album? I mean, we don't listen to things in a very linear fashion anymore. And often I, I think I miss out on the idea of love, like liner notes. You don't get to read, you know, all the credits and see who's done what. Um, are you optimistic about the, the album as, a, as an entity, as a thing in the future? I have to say I don't care at all. <laughs> I don't even think about it. It doesn't matter to me. It's a format, you know. Mm. Um, it's been a very good format in some ways, but it's been breaking down for a long time. You know, when we when we moved from two-sided albums to single long pieces, that was such a big change. People didn't realise, I think, how much of a change that was. Um, the, the move from vinyl to CDs, yeah. nothing to do with the quality of them. Who cares about that? But the difference is offering somebody two 20-minute suites, if you like. And you have to get up and walk across the room and flip it over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or offering them a 50 or 60 or even 70-minute suite. Um, so for me, the album disappeared a long time ago, really. Mm. Um, how do you feel about... I mean, a lot of pretty awful things have happened in, in the last week with, you know, Joe Cox and or Orlando and uh, various things that, that are happening, the, the, the looming spectre of Donald Trump in, in the US... Uh, are you still as engaged with everything that goes on around you? And is it in weeks like this, is it easy to just kind of go, I'm just not going to look at the news or I'm not going to stay engaged anymore? And how do you feel about where we are at the moment? Uh, I think we're in a bad place, but I've sort of thought for a long time that we had to be in that bad place before we'd get in anywhere better. You know, I, as I said last night in the talk, I, I really welcome the appearance of Donald Trump in a way because... It makes it impossible for Americans not to realise that their system is totally fucked. Sorry, it's totally... <laughs> their system is in a very bad way. <laughs> you cannot look at the horror of a situation that's produced this peroxide twerp as its possible world leader and think, how did we ever get to that? How, did, how could it have gone that wrong? that of all the 350 million people in the United States, somehow that person should have emerged as the leader. It's, it's an amazingly poor uh, indication of how well the system is working. Mm. Um, or I should say it's an, amazing, it, uh, it's an amazing indication of how poorly the system is working. Mm. That's what I mean to say. Um, and I, I think... You know, it had to get that bad for people to start thinking, you know, this really is not a good idea. Things aren't working well. So, you know, there are lots of things that count, the amount of money in, in American politics, for example, mm. and the way money is used. Uh, it's pure corruption. Yeah. If it were happening in, you know, Afghanistan or Nepal or, or South America, we'd say, well, that's corrupt. Yeah. That's just corruption. And then if we start looking at the other things that are happening in America, like the privatization of the prison system, 
You couldn't think of a worse system. If you sat down, if you got a sci-fi writer to try to invent a really bad um, political idea, they would be very gifted to come up with something as truly disastrous as that. You know, uh, how, how about it? Creating a prison system where you, you earn money by the number of people that are in prison. Okay, so, so of course you lobby lawmakers so that they put more people in prison. You criminalize more and more trivial crimes. And prison, of course, is a, a radicalization center. That's, that's, where the, <laughs> that's where you groom your criminals. Yeah, this is true. It, it, by the time um, this piece airs, um, there's a chance that uh, the UK won't be in the EU anymore. Um, well, that's another symptom of the same thing. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Disastrous. Mm. <laughs> you know, I don't think of myself as English. I think of myself as European. And I always have done, actually. I mean, my mother is Belgian, so, so I'm sort of halfway there anyway. <laughs> but yes, she was an immigrant. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I'm one of those people sponging on the system. Do you feel that we, with, with all of the things that are happening, that there's a sense that we, we're, we're sleepwalking into things again, that we should, have, we should know better because of what's happened in history? We know all the stuff. We've seen there's a repetition to all of this. That's the horror of it, yes. Mm. Um, the most frightening book I ever read was by a historian called Sebastian Hafner, who was, funnily enough, the stepfather of the Peter Schmidt that I mentioned earlier. Sebastian Hafner grew up in Germany in the early part of the 20th century, so I think he was born in 1904 or something like that. Anyway, he was a student at the time that Hitlerism was just starting to emerge in Germany. And his book, um, it's called Defying Hitler. It's a short book, and I, I really think it's every every single person in Europe should read this book because it shows exactly that process of a, of a civilized, literate, modern society being taken over by a complete thug. Um, and it, you watch the process happening and it starts exactly the same way every time. People laugh at the guy. Him, Trump, you've got to be kidding. And gradually, as, as with the Nazis, more and more little centers of power get taken over and suddenly they aren't owned anymore by the people you thought owned them. Um, in the case of Germany, they infiltrated the police and the army. The Nazis did. I mean, quite early on, they made it difficult for a teacher to get a job unless they joined the Nazi party. So it was all, at the beginning, it was all sort of jokey and almost innocent. Yeah, I have to join the Nazi party or else I'm not going to get a job. These stupid brown-shirted idiots. And bit by bit, the whole system has, has been taken over. And at the point that people, liberal people like me, who were, of course, all doing the equivalent of playing with their phones and being on the internet, whatever the 1920s and 30 equivalent of that was, at the time they look up and think, Jesus, this is serious. It's too late. And that's exactly what happened in Germany in the 30s. The moment the intellectuals and the liberals realized what was going on, mm. it was too late. It had already happened. The coup had happened. Um, and this is what I think is terrifying. Now, the situation that we have now is things like Trump and Brexit, all showing, and, and all of the various reactionary European movements, showing the same thing of 
people who have been very diligently working behind the scenes to get their claws into the organs of power uh, and have been quite successful, actually, much more successful than we liberals realize. I, th I think the thing is liberals enjoy their lives and have lots of fun things to do, like go to the theater and make radio programs and, and make records and all that sort of thing. And the reactionaries don't have anything else to do. That's all they want. They're very committed compared to us. Um, you can see this in the Brexit campaign. Now the Leave campaign seems to be in the lead. This is totally shocking to me. And I realize I've been completely complacent about it. You know, I've been thinking, of course we won't leave. Nobody's that mad. You know, there's, you know, 8% of the population who vote for UKIP and live in Clacton. But actually it isn't 8%. It's a lot more, yeah. <laughs> it turns out. Um, you know uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and he is really interesting f figure for lots of reasons, but he has been talking a lot about something that, again, often happens, we sleepwalk into it, about inequality um, and the idea of, you know, the separation between people, the, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, when you were growing up, um, you came from quite a working class background and I'm wondering if, if you came from that background now, would you have the opportunities that you have now? Would you be the person that you are now? And, and what enabled you? How did you do what you do if you came from a, a background where it was difficult? And I think it's possibly harder now. I mean, it, it, I know Julie Walters has talked about this in terms mm. of drama school and very elite people becoming actors, people who come from money backgrounds. Um, what about you? Oh, I'm completely a product of the welfare state. I mean, I owe so much to generations of, sort of socialist thinkers whose names I don't even know, who were carefully setting in place things like free education, for example, which I benefited from. You know, I came from a poor family, and for sure I would... If I came from that family now, I would not, for example, go to art school. I couldn't take on that debt. Um, I'm sure I probably wouldn't have lived, actually, because my life was saved by the NHS twice at least. Um, and we're, we're quite rapidly now dismantling the NHS. So I, I lived in a time, it seemed normal to me then, of course, but I realise it, it was a kind of unique historical episode, that period from the end of the war to the end of the 70s, say. Um, and what... I, they, I think they call that the golden age of capitalism, don't they? And what that really was was the golden age of socialism, actually. Um, it was the time when capitalism and some sort of sense of social responsibility and social engineering were in some kind of a balance. It wasn't perfect, but it was good enough to allow for the possibility of a lot of social mobility so that a lot of people from the working classes, like me... Uh, were able to actually be looked after for long enough to establish ourselves. Because that's basically what it is. You know, if you don't have money, you can't keep going for long enough to get a foothold. Um, I see... I, I was telling someone this story last night. A couple of years ago, I heard a recording by a young singer, and I thought, this is a phenomenal talent. Um, and I assumed that she was on her way and doing things. And then about um, a month ago, I was thinking, I wonder what happened to that person. She's working in a shoe shop now. 
she's from a poor family and she had to get a job. If you're not from a poor family, your parents can keep you going for a little bit. I don't blame them. <laughs> you know, it's not, they're not being malicious or elitist or anything. It's what you'd do if you could. If your kid is ready, you, you feel is ready to break through to something, but they just need a little bit of support, naturally you would help them. But if you're poor, you can't help them. And so they end up in a shoe shop, you know. Um, so I didn't end up in the shoe shop because I just claimed dole for six months. That six months was an, enough time for me to uh, join a band and become part of something. But I couldn't have done it without the dole. Mm. And I wouldn't get the dole now. I wouldn't qualify. It's... um. Are you hopeful about the future for creative people, people, artists, musicians, painters, actors, writers? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm an optimist in the long term. I'm a pessimist in the short term. Um, by the short term, I mean 15 or 20 years. Um, because I, re I do think things have to get bad before people are going to take them seriously enough to make them better. That always seems to be the pattern, you know, in the last century, of course, it, getting bad meant two really horrible wars. Um, one hopes that they won't get that bad, but I suspect they might. Mm. But then each time we seem to emerge from those things in a slightly better position than we were the time before. So it's like a little step up, then a big fall down, then a little step a little bit higher. It's seems to be the path of human history that we have to keep having catastrophes to to learn something. In the, You gave the John Peel lecture and uh, you said in that, art is everything that you don't have to do. So why do you do it? Uh, those are two different uses of the word have to implied there. <laughs> um, so what I meant by that was that there are some things you do have to do, eating, shitting, having sex, so on. Um, they're, they're part of our survival as animals. Um, we will do them. Um, but then humans, uniquely amongst animals, embroider all of those activities with a whole sort of layer of stylistic things that really aren't necessary. You know, you, you could just wear Hessian sacks and you be fine really but you, we don't we wear Yves Saint Laurent and Levi's and Chanel and all those other things we make we make a lot of choices which I call stylistic choices and that whole area of stylistic choices is the area called art as far as I'm concerned sometimes it looks quite mundane the choice of a haircut or of an earring or a way of putting on makeup or something other times it looks very grand like a symphony or uh, a masterpiece, you know, but but I think they're all essentially the same thing. They're all of they're us playing with style, and and I think we do it because it's a way that we locate ourselves in the world. It's a way we reach consensus about how we how we feel about where we are in the world. It's an, it's an endless conversation that everyone has with each other. Um, so when I say we don't have to, I mean that we. We could not respond to any of those questions. You you don't have to have a hairstyle. You just let it 
keep growing and never pay any attention to it. But it's very unusual to find people who don't um, have those stylistic interests. So I now can't remember the second part of the question. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, the, the idea that... Um, I know we've spoken before about art and science, which seem like two very polarised things. And often, you know, and particularly in schools and education, mm. often people are pushed towards the, you know, the, the STEM subjects and, you know, the, the, the proper stuff, the stuff that you get you a job and, the, you know, the creative writing and maybe visual art are not necessarily prioritised. Do you think they are as polarised or is there a lot more overlap than we assume? I think they're very different activities. I know that since the 60s it's been an aspiration of everybody to reconcile them and to try to say, oh, it's basically the same thing underneath, you know. I don't think it is. Now, I, I think it may come from the same sorts of impulses but doing science is really quite different from doing art. I know enough scientists and artists to say this pretty definitively. The, the feeling might be quite the same. You know, the, the thrill of discovering something, um, the thrill of finding your mind thinking a thought that you know no other mind has ever thought before. That's all wonderful, and it's the same for artists and scientists. But what the two activities are about... I think is quite different um, and I'm pleased that it is you know they they really are different languages the language of science is um, about testability it's about this world this one this one here the one that we're we all agree we're in whereas art is about creating other worlds about inventing other worlds and having the choice to to enter them um, so it's deliberately not about this world, in a sense, art. It's it's otherworldly. <laughs> mm. um, and it has different outcomes. Science gives you the equipment to do things, to make predictable events happen in the world. I would not want to be in an aeroplane designed by an artist. I really would prefer to be in one designed by engineers, and scientists, um, because I know that's got a much better chance of working in this world that I happen to live in <laughs> than the one designed by the artist. Mm. So, But on the other hand, I don't want to go to movies or hear music designed by engineers either. So they, they really exist for different uses for us, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that you know, science will always endure and is is never going to go anywhere. But the you are we've spoken about religion in the past before, and you mentioned uh, a quote to me. I think is really interesting by Jeremy Deller, who said that uh, rock and roll was, was the religion of the twentieth century, late twentieth century. Yeah, yes. it, mm. what was he? What did he mean by that? And was he talking about a replacement for spirituality, a replacement for people not going to mass anymore? What What do you think he was? Well, he, no, I don't think so. I, I, I should say that he said that in passing. Mm. He exhibited in one of his shows a sheet of paper from an exercise book, which was which was sold as and may well be um, John Lennon's. Uh, exam results for 1956 so it, was, it had all the teachers saying um sloppy writing needs to <laughs> needs to pay more attention that, that kind of thing 
and it was for uh, uh, June 1956. Um, and so Della in the exhibition catalogue said something like, a relic from the religion of the late 20th century rock and roll. So he never... I, I don't know outside of that what his thoughts are, but I, I take it fairly seriously. I think he's absolutely right. That was the religion of the late 20th century. It was the one place where everybody had an investment and had feelings about it. There were very, very, very few people who didn't know what was going on in that, as opposed to, say, contemporary literature or even contemporary film. Or, n nothing was as universal as, as rock and roll was then. How is your a cappella group going? Because I know you, you sing a lot of gospel songs. You're really interested mm. in gospel music. Do you, are you still meeting regularly, singing gospel songs? Every Tuesday. Every Tuesday. <laughs> what do you sing? Oh, gosh. Well, we have probably about 80 songs in the repertoire. And they range from um, old doo-wop songs to gospel songs to country. Then there's a couple of old English songs like Drink to Me Only With Thine Eyes and Early One Morning, those sort of madrigally type songs. Um, the, the, what makes a song qualify, since none of us read music, is a song that everybody can sing <laughs> and everybody can harmonise relatively easy. So I realised quite early on in my a cappella days that you could divide popular music into two categories which I call Jews and Blues. So the blues is basically Afro-American music, usually quite harmonically simple, like the blues is basically one song, always with the same three chords. Um, and the Jews is harmonically more complex, Central European, often classically derived, much harder to harmonise for people who don't have scores. Um, so, so these... These two musics meet in sort of um, American showbiz, uh, particularly musicals like West Side Story is a good example of where those two things met. Um, Porgy and Bess is another one. And Porgy and Bess is a very good example because that is actually the, the meeting of a Jewish composer with, a, with an Afro-American musical tradition. So that's a perfect example of Jews and blues. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, that we tend to take most of our music from the blues side because um, it's very easy to harmonise. Everybody knows how to harmonise those sort of chord patterns. And in fact, most country music and gospel and rock and roll and R&B and all those things tend to come from that side of music. Um, I just want to check with Kevin about the time. How are we for time? Are we okay? Okay. Uh, yeah, Five minutes. We let, yeah, we let you go. Um, I'm fascinated. Nice day. I'm uh, <laughs> anxious to get out. Okay, uh, one more question. One more question, um, which is, I'm really fascinated by what you term seamious. Mm -hmm. um, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, what, what is it? Okay, so we're used in Europe to the idea of the genius. In fact, a lot of our theories about culture are based on the idea that certain people like Beethoven or Picasso or Shakespeare are the sort of lightning rod through which God speaks to us. Um, those people channel the divine in some way. So that's a picture of culture that I almost entirely reject, actually. I just don't think that's how things happen. Um, clearly there are 
gifted individuals. It's, I'm not saying that everybody is equal. Quite the opposite. Everybody's different, actually, um, and incomparable in many ways. Um, but anyway, this this notion still exists that there are a few key players through f from from whom culture issues. Um, I became more and more convinced as I looked into it that this wasn't the case. And what was the case was that there were situations which involved lots of people, some of them artists, some of them not, some of them salonists or waiters or people who ran bars that artists liked to hang out in, uh, publishers, gallerists, critics, writers, the public, of course. And there was always a whole scene of those, a very healthy um, ecosystem of all of those people. And it was in those ecosystems that Picassos appeared and the Stravinsky's appeared and the Shakespeare's appeared. They didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of a whole ecosystem. So I thought there should be a name for that idea, the, the creative intelligence of a whole scene. So I took the word genius and turned it into senius, S-C-N-I-U-S, S-C-E-N-I-U-S, sorry. Um, and I, I prefer that. Now, it makes sense of a lot of history to me when you think of places like MIT or Xerox Labs or um, Bletchley Park, for example. They were all examples of places where, for some combination of quite mysterious reasons, really, um, a lot of great minds were produced there. And it's partly to do with everybody seeing what everybody else is doing and just stealing wholesale from them. You know, the whole thing about those situations is that everybody's watching. <laughs> everybody's alert to what's going on. And so the acceleration of ideas is very, very fast. Um, it happens instantly. S some, it's like a conversation, you know. Somebody says something, somebody else immediately comes up with something else, and then another thing, and it builds up together. It's much faster when people are in close contact. There's a sort of synergy that doesn't happen over a distance. Um, so I, I see those scenes occasionally appearing um, in, in history. And I think this, what we call the 60s was one of them. Liverpool in the 60s was particularly one of them. Um, so there are hot spots throughout history. I've always thought it would be a very nice um, um, animation to do, to do this sort of senior hotspots throughout history, just a map of the globe with bits starting to glow red. You know, think of the early Renaissance, of the time when Raphael, Michelangelo and da Vinci were all together, all alive at the same time, actually. Um, and then think of the early 20th century when you had, in the same year, uh, the Rite of Spring premiered, the Armoury Show in New York with Duchamp and so on, 1913 was an amazing year. So many things happened. I dread another year like that because I'm, I dread the catastrophe that follows it. That, that often does seem to happen that those peaks are reached just at the point things are ready to break up. Well, you mentioned conversation and it's been wonderful to, to get to chat to you again this morning. Um, thanks so much for your time, Brian Eno. Thank you, Sinead. <laughs> thanks. Brian Eno in conversation with Sinead Gleeson at the 2016 Dorky Book Festival.
This conversation was recorded and filmed in the library of Fitzpatrick's Hotel, Dawkey, as part of the 2016 Dawkey Book Festival. You can see the filmed version of this conversation on the Drama on One website, rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Thanks to Nigel Matier and all at Fitzpatrick's Hotel, Dawkey. The production team was Kevin Brew, Damien Chanel and Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.